And we have been in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And we started this last year. We took, reached the climax of Mark uh, back in November and took a break through the Advent Christmas season. And we picked back up with Mark back in the first part of January. And so we're a few weeks in, and we are picking up this morning in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 is where we'll be this morning. When I was in my early 20s, I would often go cycling with my, my father uh, and my younger brother. We, we bicycled together. And it wasn't uncommon that we would go out and we would participate in uh, some organized rides around the area. And there were a couple of years that we participated in a ride like this down in Ashland City, Tennessee. And the first year that we participated in that, we had so much fun. And we were excited to be able to go back the next year. But little did I know that that second attempt at this course in Ashland City was going to be a tragedy. You see, it wasn't very long into the ride, the ride that our, our route took us up this really long, hard, high hill. And having gone through this route the year before, I knew that on the other side of that hill was a very long, uh, fun downslope where I was going to be able to get some really great speed. And as a young 20-something, there wasn't anything more than I loved to do on my, my little road bike with, with tires that are that wide than hitting 35 and 40 miles an hour down a downslope. But I also knew on the other side of that, there was a mediocre hill. And so I knew that I wanted to pick up enough speed at least that I was going to have some additional momentum to carry me up that next hill. Well, as I was traveling down that downslope, a gentleman came flying past me. And I was running about 32, 35 miles an hour. And he comes flying past me, and at, we, we end up at the bottom of the hill with a problem. Because at the bottom of the hill, the, the road took a right-hand turn, sloped a little bit away instead of banking, sloped a little bit away from us. And this gentleman decided that he was going to fly past me halfway down the hill and stop at the bottom of the hill. He was going to be cautious and he was going to be careful as he went around that curve. But my intentions and his intentions were at odds at this point. Because remember, my intention was to be able to get enough momentum at the bottom of the hill to help me up the next one. His intentions was to be safe and take the turn safely and cautiously. Well, as we came to that place and I'm approaching at 32 miles per hour, I knew that I had to make a quick decision. And so I decided that since he was situated in the middle of the road next to the double yellow line, and the turn was towards the right, the last thing that I wanted to do was cut on his inside and potentially risk turning too sharply and my tires going out from underneath me and crashing. But at the same time, I didn't want to slow down because I was A, having too much fun, and I knew what I wanted on the other side of it. So I determined in that moment that I was going to make the, what I thought was the best, worst decision, and I was going to cross the double yellow line and go around him on the other side of the road. That was fine until I saw the truck coming the other direction. And the only thing that I could do at that particular moment was fling myself to the side and hope that I didn't get hit. And in doing so, I did a baseball slide down the pavement, ripped up my leg, my arm, busted my chin open. To make matters worse, though, my crash led to the crash of several other riders that were in the route with me. The woman that was traveling behind me, trusting in me to be able to continue moving on safely, did not have the time to slow down or swerve, and she ended up hitting my bike, going head over handlebars, and I believe she broke her arm. There were others that crashed, and there were others that, that had to slow down, and they lost all of their momentum. 
Others had to move on from that point, climbing up the next hill, scraped or bruised or with additional effort and pain because I did something selfish. A lot of times it's the picture of events in our lives where we find ourselves headed towards some conflict or disaster. And instead of giving up our desires in the moment, instead of humbling ourselves to choose a better way, we feel trapped into making the best, worst decision possible. This happens nowhere more frequently than in our relationships. And we see it most often in our marriages. It can be easy for us to be carried by the momentum of our selfishness and our sinfulness into feeling that we have to make the best, worst decision. And in doing that, we oftentimes take what we think is the best, worst decision and we cross that double yellow line unaware that we have crossed into something infinitely more dangerous. And in crashing and burning, we tear down those that are around us. And where that happens most frequently is in divorce. And that's where we're at in Mark chapter 10. Why are we at a passage of Scripture about divorce and remarriage? Because it's the next verse. It's because we've been walking through it, and this is where God has brought us to at this moment. And so if you will, look with me in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Jesus and his disciples left where they were in Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he started to teach them. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray that your grace and your mercy would be upon each and every heart and each and every home in this room this morning. Father, the question of marriage and divorce and remarriage is as controversial and sensitive today as it was at this particular time in Jesus' ministry. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would bless me in such a way that I would be able to speak with compassion, with clarity, and with courage. And I pray that you would grip our hearts and our minds and that you would humble us, Heavenly Father, that we might not come to sit over Scripture, but to sit under Scripture, and that we might take into our hearts and into our homes this difficult teaching of Jesus Christ that holds fast to a higher standard than we want to hold to that holds forth an ideal Heavenly Father that left the the disciples back in the book of Matthew where Matthew records this event questioning whether or not it's even smart for a man to get married in the first place. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in our hearts, 
that you would bring humility, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring courage, that you would bring clarity to our lives, and that you would give us encouragement that we might pursue you, that we might pursue your pattern and your plan for your name and for your glory and for the good of those that we love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. And amen. Where we pick up in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus and his disciples are on the way, if you will. They're on the way to Jerusalem. Mark spends the first seven and a half chapters of his gospel summarizing what happened in about probably nearly three years of Jesus' ministry. At the halfway point when, when Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, Mark then spends another seven and a half chapters focusing on what amounts to probably about two to three months. He drastically slows down his story. And from the moment that Jesus was declared to be the Christ, he begins to expose to his disciples the mission of, him, of himself, the Messiah, as he travels to Jerusalem where he repeatedly tells them he is going to be killed. He's going to be rejected, he's going to be killed, and he's going to raise again on the third day. And so they are on the way to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling towards Jerusalem to die for sinners and be raised again from the dead, he begins to intensify his training of the disciples. He's, he's training them as followers in the path of true disciples. And true disciples of Jesus Christ have received his message that he began preaching all the way back in Mark chapter 1, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And those have, they have repented of their sins, and they're following the path of kingdom values that the King, Jesus Christ himself, is walking in front of them. And this path, this kingdom path that follows kingdom values requires self-denial and service and sacrifice, and it directly conflicts with the values of the world. And we see that conflict clearly when Jesus gets to where he's going in Judea, where he is confronted by these Pharisees. And the Pharisees come to test Jesus. Literally, they have come to tempt him. It's the same word that Mark used as to what the, uh, Satan was doing in the desert as Satan came to tempt Jesus Christ. And so these, uh, these Pharisees are a hostile audience. They're coming to challenge him over a sensitive and controversial topic, which is divorce. And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Divorce was as common then as it is now. It was as controversial then as it is now, especially in this region where Jesus is currently ministering. Because this is the region where John the Baptist was ministering. And if you remember from earlier in Mark, John the Baptist was eventually arrested and beheaded in this region because of his continual rebuke of Herod the king over his marriage to his niece and former sister-in-law, Herodias. And he had evoked Herodias' wrath. And so, most likely, the Pharisees are here to test Jesus by drawing him into a debate where they can force him to support John the Baptist and then bring about Herodias' anger against Jesus. Regardless, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he goes on the offensive, countering their question with a question, where he says, what did Moses command you? This question pushes the, the Pharisees off guard. 
and forces them to acknowledge the fact that nowhere in the Bible does God ever command divorce. Nowhere. It's significant that Jesus' question is, what does Moses command you? And the Pharisees' response was, he allowed or he permitted. Because nowhere in Scripture does God ever command or prescribe divorce. The best that they can offer is a place in the law where Moses regulates the practice of divorce among the people. And in that, we see how sin has distorted marriage. Sin has distorted man's relationship with marriage. They talk about how Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. What they neglect to understand is that if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, where this takes place, what Moses has done is he is bringing about a regulation on the practice of divorce that is running rampant in the people of Israel. And what is happening is men are dismissing their wives left and right, disturbing things, and so Moses comes in and he regulates it by, saying, by giving a case law where he says, if this situation happens, this is what is not allowed to happen. If a man hates his wife, divorces her, sends her away by giving her a certificate of divorce, and she gets remarried, that's the case. The law is he's not allowed to show back up and say, hey, she's my wife first, I want her back. And destroy another home. Because he's abused her by sending her away. And even if her husband dies and she is now a widow, he's not allowed to go back to her and abuse her a second time. He's regulating the practice of divorce, not encouraging it or prescribing it. And that's what Jesus brings out when he says, because of the hardness of heart that Moses wrote this commandment. There is no such thing as a sinless divorce, period. There is always sin involved in divorce. It could be mutual and it could be one-sided. But divorce is always an act of relational violence. If you look at Malachi chapter 3, people are, pr are, are, are prone to go there and quote the old translation that says God hates divorce. But the best translation of that is not God hates divorce, but is reflected in the ESV that says when a husband hates his wife and divorces her, he covers himself in violence. He covers himself in bloodshed. And then he has the audacity to come before the Lord and weep and wail and wonder why God won't answer his prayers. And God says, it's because you have violated the covenant of your wife with your wife. And so Jesus exposes here the hardness of their heart. Because what they're asking is not the question, how can we have successful marriages, but how can we successfully get out of our marriages? And the debate that was raging among the Pharisees at that time is, what's acceptable grounds to get out of this thing? Now, I know that that debate rages today. And there are genuine concerns about the issues of adultery and abandonment and abuse. And there are important circumstances that require gentleness and compassion and love. But we have to realize that's not what G the focus of this passage of Scripture right here. Instead, Jesus is addressing a hostile crowd seeking to justify their own serial monogamy. And Jesus is confronting them and us with our sins. 
They were masters of the no-fault divorce clause. One school of thought at this particular day said that if a wife burned a man's toast, that was grounds for divorce. They were masters of it. They had found all of the ways that they could finagle through it. And we're not much better. It's true that there are serious issues of adultery and abandonment and abuse. But the fact of the matter is they are far from the most prevalent reasons that men and women pursue divorce. One article by a, a law firm put it this way where they quoted some studies where it says the four most common reasons for divorce are first, lack of love or intimacy. The idea that someone, one of the partners, fell out of love with the other one. The second most common reason for divorce is communication problems. We don't communicate enough or we don't communicate in the right, proper way. Third, lack of sympathy, respect, or trust. Fourth, we're just simply growing apart. And this secular study made this conclusion. Basically, we live in an era when personal satisfaction is important. And if a marriage is no longer satisfying us because we don't feel like we're on the same page as our partner or the romance has gone MIA, divorce may be an acceptable option. That's the position of the Pharisees then. That's the position of the majority of our culture today. And instead of engaging the Pharisees in a debate about acceptable escape clauses in a marriage contract, Jesus refocuses their attention and our intention to the biblical notion of a marriage covenant. And he looks over the sin-riddled mass of broken marriages to the original marriage, reminding us that no matter how distorted our understanding of marriage has become, God has a design for marriage. Jesus says, if you're looking at divorce, then you're looking in the wrong direction. We need to stop looking at the dismembered masses of other marriages and look instead towards and strive after God's original design. Two weeks ago, Sarah and the boys were not here at church. And the reason that they weren't here at church is because it was one of the first cold mornings, really the, the coldest morning that we've had so far this winter. They were dressed, they were ready to go, they were coming to church, and they went out and they tried to start the car and the battery was dead. And so they couldn't make it and they joined us online. But then, while I had to stay here later that afternoon, my father-in-law went over to help. Excuse me, they took the battery out of the car. They went looking for a replacement. They weren't able to find it, so he went back home. And I got the phone call that said, hey, I need you to get here, get us. We loaded up in the car. We came back on this side of town to the Walmart where the battery was, took it back. And now it's my responsibility to put it back in. Which is, I mean, I know that the positive side goes on the positive, negative side goes on the negative, that's great, it goes in its little hole. But with the bane of my existence in that moment was the little latch that locks the battery into place. And I hadn't been the one to take it out. So I didn't know how the, the latch was supposed to go back in. And so there I am wrestling with this little bitty tiny piece of metal trying every which way that I could possibly get it. And I couldn't get the, the bolts to take. And I thought at one point maybe I'd strip the screws. I'm messing around with this thing 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Poor Bryant is standing right there and he goes, Daddy, I think I know how it is. And I lash out at my son. I'm 35 years old. You're nine years old. It's the second time you've looked at a hood. What do you think you know that I don't? And he left hurt. And it was after all that time that I realized that I had the thing upside down the whole time. But since I didn't know how it went in, I didn't have a picture of the pattern, I didn't know how to, go, how to put it back the way that it was supposed to be. 
And the unfortunate reality is that when we pattern our behavior and our marriages after the examples of other human beings, we're following broken and sinful patterns. The healthiest, happiest marriages in existence today are still the union of two sinners sinning all over one another. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. It doesn't exist. And though we need the influence and the example of godly husbands and godly wives who can be a source of wisdom and encouragement, we need a more clear picture and pattern of a perfect union. And so God in the Garden of Eden creates marriage. And in doing so, He gives us a picture of His design for marriage. And God's design for marriage is, let me say something that's a little bit controversial. Marriage is not a Christian institution. Marriage is a creation institution. It existed long before the church. It existed long before the people of Israel. It existed before sin even came into the world. It was designed by God from the beginning. And Jesus turns their attention back to the book of Genesis, which Moses also wrote, by the way, and that predates the commandments that came later on. And he points them back to God's original design and intention for marriage. Where he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The first thing that we see is that God designed marriage to be complementary. Jesus, again, is subtly reminding the the Pharisees of what Moses originally wrote. And what he wrote in the creation account is that as God created the world, he repeatedly declared, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Which is what makes chapter 2 so shocking when we read the phrase, it is not good, that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. So God created a partner for him. And that complimentary partner was not another man to be his buddy or his best friend or his lover. And that compliment was not a child for him to nurture or to protect or instruct. Instead, God made a woman. She was like the man in every way that mattered. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She also was a reflection of the image of God, imprinted with all the dignity and value that God's image brings to any human being. She was an essential partner with the man in the mission that God had given to be fruitful and multiply the image of God through the garden and beyond. She was like him in the most important ways, but not identical to him. Instead, she was his complement, his counterpart, physically, emotionally, mentally, etc. And God presented her to the man as his suitable helper. And that is such a dignified word that we have lost in our world. The word that is used here shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament describing reinforcements that are absolutely essential for an army to win a victory. They're essential reinforcements. It's also a word used of God when He steps in and He elevates the people of Israel to be what they cannot be on their own and to achieve what they cannot achieve on their own. And that is the mission and the purpose of a wife to partner with her husband that she might beco- so that he might become what he could never be on his own. And it's her presence and her purpose in the world and in a man's life that leads him to commit himself to her exclusively. And that's what we see in the next statement when Jesus says that God created the male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is meant to be exclusive. 
From the moment that sin entered into the world, men have distorted the good intentions that God had for women. We read that you're supposed to be my helper. Well, I don't think that you're helping me all that well, so I'm going to get rid of you and I'm going to find a better helper. And we get to determine whether or not their ability to make us happy is what is the grounds for us to get them out of our lives. When we experience displeasure, what we start doing is window shopping other women, fantasizing about other marriages and how much better another person, another woman, another match and mate might be. But that's not what God intended for men. As God created the woman to be the helper, God created the man to leave and cleave to his wife. Notice the command there is first to men. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, granted, Jesus is specifically speaking to men that doesn't free women from their responsibility to leave mother and father and hold fast to this new identity that's being created. But specifically, Jesus is talking here to the men that we are to leave father and mother. And this seems antiquated and outdated and irrelevant to many in the world. Because in our culture where people are getting married later and later in life, many men and many women have moved out of mom and dad's homes. They've moved out of the city. They have their own life, their own apartment, their own identity apart from their household. And so this idea that I'm supposed to leave father and mother just doesn't seem relevant. Also because of broken relationships in the world, there are a lot of kids who grow up into adults who have zero relationship with their parents whatsoever because their parents are toxic. And so, I don't have to leave my mother and father. My mother and father left me years ago. But on the other hand, it's specifically relevant to a bunch of mama's boys who are still living in their parents' basements, rent-free, eating off all the food on the insurance plan, the phone plan, and everything else, and completely dependent upon mom and dad as a 28-year-old, a 32-year-old, a 42-year-old. And we need to hear that command to leave father and mother. The principle that's behind this is the broader principle that we are to leave the source of what was once our identity. In this particular culture, the source of a person's identity was their home, their family unit, mom and dad. And there was a a need to break away from that. In our society, we need to break away from our plans, from our desires, from all of those things that we have shaped about, this is the way that my life is going to go. This is the pattern that my life is going to follow. And instead, surrender that to the new reality that my future is now shaped by this relationship. We're to leave all of that stuff that would otherwise define us aside and realize that God has created a new identity in which a man and a woman come together and they are so united that their future is together. And divorce never breaks that apart. You are tied emotionally, relationally, historically with your children. Your lives are going to be intertwined from this day forward. But instead, we're to leave what was once the sources of our identity and instead hold fast to the new identity that God is forging in this relationship between us and our wife. And that takes intentionality, that takes effort, because the world is wanting to rip us from our wives. Wives, the world is wanting to rip you from your husband. As our own sin nature and Satan around us wants to see marriages destroyed. And so Jesus says, you not only have to actively lead, leave, you have to actively hold fast. 
Hold firm. When I think about it, I think of that, that picture of ancient Greek mythology, of one of the, the epic heroes. I can't remember if it was a Theseus or somebody, but they're traveling through on the boat, and they're the sirens that are calling from the, from the shore. And it draws all of these ships to crash. And so he, he gets around it by putting beeswax in the ears of his sailors. And he wants to hear the sirens call. So he has them tie the, him to the mast so that he can hear it, tempt himself, but never urge them to follow that path and into destruction. Guys, we have to, ladies, we have to put the earwax in our ears and turn ourselves away from social media and the uh, television and the media culture around us that is constantly sexualizing everything. The Instagram and Facebook and Twitter culture that says there's always bigger and better. And instead, hold fast to the covenant commitment that we've made. Fight with all of our might by clinging to our spouse, no matter how fiercely the tempests in our own heart and the world wants to rip us apart. God's purpose of marriage is an exclusivity that makes intimacy possible. And that's the second thing we see in God's, or the third thing we see in God's design for marriage is that it is to be intimate. Jesus said, A husband shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If you go to Genesis, Genesis takes that a step further where the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, are now united by God in one flesh, and he says they are now naked and unashamed. Oftentimes when we come to verses like this and we talk about the one flesh union between a man and a woman that God creates in marriage, we, we think that Jesus is simply, in the Bible, is simply affirming the sexual nature of marriage. And though that is one of the most significant and intimate ways that a man and a woman can come together, it's empty when it's not reinforced by spiritual, emotional, and relational intimacy and security. What we see in the Garden of Eden is a picture of a perfect marriage where a man and a woman have no sin to be ashamed of. And so they are able to stand before one another completely vulnerable and completely exposed and be safe and be unashamed. That's what true intimacy is. There's a movie, Meet Joe Black, and in that movie, death is trying to understand humanity, and so he's experiencing life as a human. And at one point, he interviews a human, and he asks the man, hey, how do you know that your wife loves you? And the man's answer is because she knows the worst thing about me and it's okay. When Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing that went out the window was their intimacy with one another. As soon as they sinned, they were no longer unashamed, but they were ashamed in front of one another. And instead of coming together in that moment, they ran away from one another. They hid from one another and they hid from God. And from that they began blaming one another. And we see their intimacy dissolve into conflict. Oftentimes when there's sin in a person's life, when there's sin in my life, we think that the best thing to do is just push everybody else away. Just get alone. I'm so tainted. I'm so guilty. No one could ever possibly love me. 
And when we get in that position, we end up in the same place that a depressed person feels when they have no hope and that suicide is the only way out. When we get to that place as husbands and wives where we feel so ashamed and guilty and we feel helpless, we believe that blowing everything up and dealing with the pieces is so much easier than dealing with the shame of coming clean with our sin. Because the shame of divorce is easier to bear than the shame of coming clean over adultery or any other sin. But God didn't design our marriages to be dissolvable. Instead, he designed them to be permanent. And that's what we see as Jesus goes on and he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They're no longer two, they are one. God's intention and design for marriage is that it be complementary, exclusive, intimate, and permanent. Jesus leaves the Old Testament and provides that commentary here. Because God's pattern for marriage is clear. One man, one woman, united in an exclusive and intimate relationship. An intimate and exclusive, permanent relationship with one another. And that level of permanence is found ultimately in the perfect picture of marriage. Where God infuses marriage with the meaning ultimately as being a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This statement right here that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh shows up four different times in the Bible. It's the only teaching on marriage that shows up four times in the Bible. It's perhaps the most important teaching on marriage in all of the Bible. And one of the places it shows up is in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul is explaining the purpose of marriage, that marriage is a picture of Christ's sacrificial love of the church. And the church's selfless surrender and love to Jesus Christ. And in the same way that Jesus Christ is willing to lay down his life to meet the needs of his wife and to wash her in the water of the word and protect her and present her wholly to God. So a husband is called to love his wife and sacrifice all of his wants, all of his desires, all of his best interests for the sake of the sanctity of their marriage. And wives are meant to respect their husbands and love their husbands and pour into their husbands. And in doing so, we declare to the world what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Husbands, wives, every single day that you live your life as a husband and wife, you are telling the world and your children what you believe to be true about the gospel. And when we break up a marriage, we are declaring we believe it's possible for Jesus to abandon the church or for the church to walk away from Jesus. Marriage is infinitely valuable. And it's permanent as God unites them. And as we've seen as their pattern before, the disciples are shocked by Jesus' teaching. They're completely confused. And they pull him aside and they get in the house and they ask him for some clarity. And unfortunately, his clarity does, in any way, does not in any way soften his position. He issues a clear warning to you and to me in this room right now. Divorce is a dangerous path into sin. Sin distorts it. God has a better plan and design for it. And divorce is a dangerous path away from God's plan and into sin. And Jesus declares, whoever divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus assumed, as the culture at that time assumed, that a divorced individual was going to remarry. Then he says, this divorce and remarriage is an act of adultery, period. 
It's a betrayal of God's original design. It's a betrayal of the original covenant. It's a violation of the vows exchanged. It's a rejection of God's purposes. And in these verses, I hear Jesus Christ calling out the warning that says, divorce is dangerous. Do not go that way. It's a pathway into sin. Do not go that way. As Jesus is talking in this section of Mark, as he's training up his disciples, he's teaching them to turn away from their selfishness, to turn away from their sense of self-preservation, to deny themselves, seek to be the least among them, and serve others. So I hear him calling out as he is saying to these disciples, he says, disciples, turn away from your sinful desires and make much of your marriage. Stop looking at divorce, but turn and make much of your marriage. Now what about those who've walked this path? Just very briefly. Because I know that I'm speaking to and preaching to many who are online and who are here who have walked the path of divorce and remarriage. What does that mean for you? We only need to go into John chapter 4 where we're going to see how Jesus Christ interacts with a divorcee. And I would encourage you to read that passage of Scripture there as Jesus is tender and he applies the grace and the mercy of God to that woman who has been married four or five different times and is currently living with a man who's not her husband. And he speaks love and grace to her. Grace is always sufficient to overcome any sin in our lives, period. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to overcome all of our failures and our faults. And the way we receive that grace is by confession and repentance. It's not standing before God and attempting to excuse our past decisions and attempting to excuse our past relationships and divorces, but instead hearing God's word, letting it come into our hearts and saying, that was not best. That was not God's design. It was a violation and it was wrong. And from this point forward, commit to be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. If you are someone who is divorced and remarried, remarried, fight for your marriage where you are now. The path of repentance isn't to crush this marriage that you're currently in. You're not living in perpetual adultery. As you move forward, these are finite verbs. But nevertheless, if you say, well, if God's grace is sufficient, I can scrap this marriage, go get, di- or get divorced, go get married in a second place, and God's grace will be waiting for me on the other side, I would tell you right now you don't understand grace at all. And you probably don't understand the gospel at all. Because it's an abuse of the gospel in Jesus Christ who died for you to say I'm going to wantonly choose sin because Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. Be faithful where you are. Are you divorced and unmarried? Then fight to be faithful to the Lord, walking in obedience to Him, praying for your former spouse, praying for your life, praying that you and he or you and she might receive grace, redemption, reconciliation, and love, and all of the things that the gospel promises. If the gospel is powerful enough to raise sinners from the dead and transform lives, The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to change your ex-spouse, your abusive spouse, your adulterous spouse, your angry spouse. The gospel is powerful enough to transform it all. Believe in the gospel for yourself and for them. Are you considering divorce? Stop. Don't go that way. Have you filed for divorce? Stop. 
don't go that way. Be faithful where you are because divorce is just like me crossing that double yellow line, thinking that there's a better way, and all I'm going to end up doing is coming into a worse catastrophe where I hurt myself and I hurt those that are around me. If I could go back, I'd make a different, more difficult decision. Instead of insisting on finding my own way and getting what I wanted, momentum to make my ascent on the other side much easier, no matter the risk, I would have chosen to slow down, fall in behind or beside the man, and continue on with the race. It would have been harder on that uphill, but I would have gotten through on the other side. I would have had the experience, the joy of finishing the race, and I wouldn't have caused all of the pain to the people that are behind me. There's a better way. Divorce is not the best option. It's not the best worst option. It's a dangerous path, and God has something better for you. And so I encourage you, reach out, ask for help. You're not meant to live this life alone. If you're in a struggling marriage, reach out, ask for help. Strive to be faithful where you are. Where can you find help? Unfortunately, in our city, there are very few places. And that's sad. Those counselors that do specialize in marriage therapy and, 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 and marriage rehabilitation, they're overwhelmed right now in our city. And there are no churches that I know of that have any ongoing outreach and helps to marriages and couples who are struggling. And I want to see our church fix that. I want to see our church step into that gap. I want it to, to be a place where people can marry, couples can truly find help. And so there's a ministry that we are going to try, and I'm encouraging you to pray wherever you are. Whether you have a strong and healthy marriage and happy marriage, whether you're struggling, I want you to pray about potentially joining us in this, this pilot program where we're going to go through a, a marriage ministry that requires a 16-week commitment where we work together with one another to strengthen our marriages. And that's going to start and launch on February the 14th. If you have questions about it, I encourage you to come and talk with me. If you're interested in coming together, whether you're struggling, whether you are strong, come together and help us see this marriage ministry. And let's examine this marriage ministry. And let's pray together as a church family and let us move forward and see if this is a way that we can truly minister to our city as we come alongside one another to grow up together, strengthening our marriages. Because God's way is the best way to quote the little asparagus from VeggieTales. God's way is always the best way. And I'm encouraging you today, walk God's path. It's not easy, it's the hardest, but it's the best. I invite you, if you would, go before the Lord right now. Seek His face. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit, where am I? How can I respond? How can I, from this day forward, confess and repent of the path that I'm walking and instead walk a path of faithfulness where I am for the Lord and for His glory? Whether it's in the context of being remarried, single, currently married, how can I be faithful where I am? Take a moment to pray, and I'll close this out in a moment.